Welcome to the Performance Nutrition Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubbs. Welcome back or welcome to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. I am Mark Bubbs and this is season number six of the podcast. I've got a fantastic episode for you today, people. A true expert in the field, Dr. Chad Kirksick, is on the show to cover a range of performance topics, including low energy availability, creatine supplementation in kids, and the application of berberine for potential glucose control. Chad is an associate professor in the exercise science department at Lindenwood University, where he currently serves as the director of the Exercise and Performance Nutrition Laboratory and the Master of Science in Health Sciences program. His primary research interests include sport nutrition, as well as the biochemical, cellular, and molecular adaptations relative to various forms of interventions, both exercise and nutrition. Before we get started, a quick announcement. Athlete Performance Nutrition is hosting a free online football performance nutrition summit next week starting Tuesday, June 21st, running to Thursday, June 23rd, 2022. Speakers include Kate Calloway of the Carolina Panthers, John Parenti of the Miami Dolphins, Will Greenberg of the Buffalo Bills, Dr. Matt Frakes, Director of Nutrition for LSU Football, and many, many more. Get up to speed on the latest research and gain cutting-edge insights from people working in the trenches in pro and elite college football. Best of all, it's totally free. Just head over to performancenutritionpodcast.com forward slash football. That's performancenutritionpodcast.com forward slash football and sign up there. All the action starts Tuesday, June 21st. Hope to see you there. All right, let's get this episode rolling. My conversation with Dr. Chad Kirksick. Chad, really appreciate you carving out some time today for us. Yeah, no, it's great to be here. Um, you know, certainly been looking forward to this for quite some time. Listen, maybe you could start us off by telling us a little bit about your current role and some of your uh, research areas of interest. Yeah, thanks. So I think, you know, research roles and interests, I mean, the I guess let's let's say um, the elevator speech, if you will. You know, if I'm mm. if I've uh, if I'm gonna explain to somebody just kind of what I do, I mean, I'm I'm um, a university professor that teaches and researches uh, predominantly within the intersection between exercise and nutrition. Uh, we, we do a lot of exercise only studies, a lot of nutrition only, but I really like to examine the interaction. Uh, and then a lot of our work writing has, has discussed outcomes related to health performance and recovery. So I think that's probably the shortest way. Uh, but, you know, we've, we've done a lot of things with dietary supplements. We've done a lot of things with different types of, of, of diet programs. So body composition manipulation uh, has become an extremely popular topic, uh, you know, very common exercise training adaptations. You know, more recently, there's uh, there's there's a tremendous amount of interest in recovery and exercise recovery. So a, few, a handful of our studies have, have jumped into that angle. Um, you know, the, I, I think the other thing, too, is that I actually I, I like to bounce around with different types of topics. Um, I do that really, I think, for a couple of reasons. Uh, number one, uh, the students that work in our lab, um, I, I, I think it helps them a little bit better because it, it exposes them to different types of study populations, uh, older people, younger people, males, females, strength athletes, endurance athletes. So they have to, they have to be get a little bit more connected to, to the, the, I guess the nuances of those groups. And then also each study design is a little bit different as well. Uh, so it makes it a little bit more exciting. We're measuring different things. And then also too, I, the second reason I do it is I just, um, I, I, I just like to learn. I like to learn a lot of different aspects of it. So when I can get our project, get our group engaged in different projects, then it forces me to dive into different areas as well. That's really interesting, that idea of even that is betting the breadth of that knowledge in, in different domains. And, you know, we hear a lot of the term expert generalists and Duncan French uh, reminded me there of the sort of specialist generalist, mm-hmm. which is a little bit like yourself of having these specialties, but being able to go across a wide breadth of things, which we're going to cover here today in, in pinging around different topics. Um, before we do, a little bit about your philosophy, whether it's, you know, working with an athlete or a client or as a, as a research scientist, you know, what's your philosophy there when you're trying to uh, implement something or even as you think about problems? Yeah, I, so, I mean, that's a great question. And that, that's honestly some things that, that being in the academic setting, 
um, I, we, we, we definitely tried to hold the line on um, helping students begin to understand those types of things and kind of think about those elements as well. It certainly wasn't anything that I focused too much upon when I was going through my, through my educational work and even kind of early, you know, early days of being a faculty member. But I think uh, particularly as it, as it applies to exercise and nutrition, I think probably the single couple of philosophies, I think if you're talking about working with a client or working with an individual, um, many times in presentations and when I'm speaking, we're, 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 it becomes critically important for you to just like focus on the foundations or to simplify. I, I, I think there's, we, we, have, we have so much potential so much opportunity to consume various types of information and the the level of detail the level of nuance the level of explanation for some of that information uh is certainly not as developed as it as it could be um you know so there's so that so that's where i think the consumer the people that are lesser educated maybe don't have as much time and effort and, and kind of the the ability to really understand and jump into it, they need to simplify it. They need to, they need to, you know, so what does that mean for somebody who's in, interested in, you know, health and, and weight loss or something along those lines? I mean, a lot of times for me, it starts with, you got to know how many calories you're bringing in and you got to have a good idea how many calories you're burning. And then we need to figure out consistently what you need to do with your day to tip that scale where we need to do it. You know, I, and I don't, you know, I, I don't want to get into a big long debate over cal calories in versus calories out and everything else. That's not really the point. But I think in general, like, you know, if you're going to if you're going to operate in that space, you have to move somebody in the direction where they're 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 understanding that those are critical, fundamental elements of 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 of, of them trying to achieve that goal. And I can take the same thing from a simplifier focus on the foundations perspective for athletes many times. You know, uh, athletes will get caught up in, you know, like, is this exercise the best? Is this style of exercise better? Is this, here's a new implement. Here's a new fancy machine. Is this, the, is this exercise what I should be doing to, to maximize my performance or maximize my strength? But they're only training two days a week or when they get in the gym, they're half, excuse my line, you know, they're half assing it. You know what I mean? They're not, sure. they're not on point with their loads. They're not, you know. So those are the things of, you know, and those focus on the foundations. Like we know, right, that the things like overload and specificity and frequency and volume and intensity are, are critical, critical, critical elements to drive adaptations. So I think for many people, and, and, and that, that, that philosophy can be extended to a coach where you can make it a whole lot easier on yourself. Maybe a coach is feeling overwhelmed because they're like, oh, man, I feel like I got to have this fancy program and all these bells and whistles and everything else, man, I don't start with the foundations, build a culture, get your athletes, get your people in the weight room where they want to be there and they want to bust their tails. Uh, you're going to see the needle move on what, on what needs to happen. Um, then. Yeah. I mean, I, I hear a couple things there. I mean, talk about, uh, you know, being an, an expert in the fundamentals is really such a key part of this whole story, isn't it? And it, that can really propel performance. And then the other piece being, regardless if we're dealing with even a high level professional athlete or a coach or athlete who's, you know, college athlete who's busy when life's busy, these simple heuristics are being able to apply things in a simple way that they can actually remember so they can apply it in their life. is such a key part of the story as well. Right. Well, and I, and I think there, there are so many key, key elements to that. Um, you know, just as we were talking for a little bit off air, you know, as you transition through life and, and you get a family, or you, or you get other priorities that just demand of your time, whatever they may be. They don't have to be a family, right? But, but you know, and 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 the world picks up its pace. You know, like if 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 you you have got to slow your life down and focus and figure out a way how to just get some exercise, and you know, and and that for many people is just the first step. So then don't let the next step of well, what am I going to do? Can, cause conflict like just get out and go like break us i've told my buddies at times just break a sweat like just start there break a sweat you know and then once you're consistently doing that now we can talk about how fast you're running or doing intervals or you're doing what kind of workout are you doing or anything else yeah so that mindset and i and i mean i even deal with that with myself mark with times where you know there's times right you have multiple deadlines and you're just getting crushed from all angles and and then just you know you're like i i should really i should really 
you know, stay here and, and get and, and get some work done. But then it's like, no, I mean, I need I need to, I need to go exercise because it, it'll it'll kind of drive you through other parts of your day. Um, you know, I, I really try to embrace the mindset personally where like I don't have time to not work out. Um, not a lot of people say I don't have time to work out. Right. But but I feel like I have so much more energy. I'm so much more on point. I'm just happy. I'm just just better um, yeah. when I do exercise. And it, and it can be a 30 minute workout. You know, I, I'm uh, it doesn't have to be a, this killer 60 minute workout that I'm you know, I can hardly move my limbs when I get done. So there's a little bit of a personal yeah. element there and some professional elements as well. It's, it is so key, isn't it? Just to uh, be able to actually mentally perform because we're sat in front of computers so much today. And to your point, we've got multiple deadlines. We, we need to exercise just to be able to, to perform um, our best to deliver to those deadlines. And so, you know, I think people do get paralyzed a little bit with trying to think of what should I do? What type of workout? It's like, let's just get moving first. Let's get sweating. And then we can start stacking on there. And listen, I'd love to jump in. We talked energy balance there. Let's mm -hmm. from there. I'd love to talk about relative energy deficiency in sport, low energy sure. availability. We've touched on that previously in the podcast. I'll give everyone a quick definition here of, of reds to get everyone up to speed. And then we can jump in yep. here that relative energy deficiency in sport defined as that state of impaired physiological functioning caused by the chronic relative energy deficiency, which includes, but is not limited to impairments of metabolic rate, menstrual function, bone health, immune function, protein synthesis, cardiovascular health, and various indices of physical performance. So obviously covering uh, a yep. lot of, a lot of blocks there. Now, a common metric used to try to identify or diagnose, which is which is difficult, is this concept of low energy availability. Mm -hmm. Can you give us a quick review of that and discuss how can practitioners actually try to calculate this in their in their athletes? Yeah. So, I mean, honestly, let me let me let me just let me grab your listeners just for a second there, man. I mean, take a look at the time where 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 you know uh, where you just said that, and go back over that definition and just think about all of the different components of, of the human system of the human body that reds is pulling into, because I think that's been the single biggest part of this appreciation of, of the impact of low energy across the body, you know, or is it reds is, is, is viewed much more favorably because of it. It's so much more encompassing uh, and representative of all of the different physiological symptoms, you know, reds, Many people would say kind of replaced the female athlete triad, and you you know just really quickly you know that the the I mean uh, the triad is still present, but but that that but reds has kind of fallen into more favor because we we number one um, we see that we see these things happening in in male athletes, so the female athlete triad did not did not represent well for those, but the triad also focused on basically bone health, menstrual dysfunction, and basically disordered eating. It, and it didn't capture number one the true root cause, which is is low energy availability, which which we'll, which we'll dive into next. But it, the triad also didn't address the immune, the cardiovascular, the suppressed metabolic rate, the, the impaired muscle protein synthesis, all of the different elements. So if we jump into like what is low energy availability, so you know Annie Locks and her group were really the first ones to do the night the, the first studies to help kind of quantify some some numbers and and throw out some potential thresholds. Uh, and then I think over the next, the next several years, the, the literature base will continue to kind of evolve, you know, those numbers, but low, L, uh, low energy availability is this, is this, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a basically a simple math equation where we have three components. We have energy intake. So how many calories per day is an individual bringing in, um, into their body? So how is that assessed? It's simple to assess, but it's not easy. I mean, it's, it's, it's honestly energy intake is like the bane of nearly every exercise nutritioner's existence. Even because, Kevin Hall. <laughs> oh, it's terrible. I know. I, I mean, it, it is if uh, whoever figures out that way, how to do it with good compliance and accuracy, I mean, they need to win medals. They need to own an Island. Like they need something I mean, because it's, it's a big issue, but you know, so whether it's a 24 hour food recall, a two day, three day, four day, six day, seven day diet log, right. There's just pros and cons, but I think, and there's, it's fraught with errors because it's, it's a pain in the rear to do, yeah. you know, like nobody likes logging their foods and the apps and the barcode scanners have made it and it made it much, much better. Uh, and there's a number of groups that are working on it, but that's the one component of, of LEA is energy intake. Um, so do whatever you need to do to get, to make sure that that number is representative 
and that you're just as confident in that number as possible. The other side of that equation on the um, is how many calories is, is the is the individual burning uh, during activity or during exercise, you know, so th that that gets a little bit challenging to think about because we're not really talking about just going on a stroll through your neighborhood yeah. or the calories that you might burn doing house chores or working out in the yard. It's more of of what we refer to as like exercise. And, and you'll see a lot of people, there's not a perfect definition, but a lot of times people will define exercise as something that was planned, something that was systematic, something that was formalized. So whether it was a group class, obviously like a team workout, mm -hmm. um, anything where there's programming or prescriptions surrounding it, we would, we would definitely classify that as a workout. Um, you know, so how many calories are burned during that? And then on the, on the, the, the so we would basically, we, we would take energy intake and then we would, so how many calories are coming in and we, then we would subtract how many calories somebody's burning. So that's on the numerator. We're basically building kind of a, a, a mathematical function here. Uh, and then on the denominator, we would take how many, how many kilograms of fat-free mass an individual has. Um, and that we can get through any number of, of means of, of a body composition assessment. So it could be something as simple as um, uh, somebody who's skilled at doing some skin folds, you know, DEXAs, underwater weighing, uh, bioelectrical impedance, things along those lines. So it's a little bit more involved than just the body mass. Um, so it's, again, so if you look at it in, in collectively, low energy availability is defined as the difference between energy intake and exercise energy expenditure. Uh, and then we divide that by fat-free mass in kilograms. So what it what we end up with, so the definition of that is basically what we're left with are these numbers that typically range from like, you know, let's say 10 to 10 to 60, 10 to 70, you know, where greater than 45 is viewed to be kind of like optimal in terms of facilitating positive training adaptations. 30 to 45 is, is, you know, kind of a, a low, a, a, let's call it a, a caution range where if we're going to definitely, we're going to be on the lower end of that range. Let's, let's try to make sure we're not in that range on the low end of that range for extended periods of time. And then below 30 is even more of a kind of a, let's call it a danger zone, if you will, where sure, certainly during certain workouts, athletes may dip down into there, but that should not be an area where athletes are regularly residing in terms of their energy availability. The, the, so those are the ranges the greater than 45, 30 to 45, less than 30. And then the last thing that I'll just say in a, in a summary definition, right, is EA is defined as basically what we're left with on these numbers is how many calories per kilogram of fat-free mass is left after, after exercise for the, for the human body, for the physiological systems to, to operate, to function. So if you just sit there and think about that, well, then that should make sense, right? If we have less energy available to our body to function, you know, then we can certainly create a problem where there, maybe there's not enough energy and now the body has to fight to, to create it. Yeah. It's definitely one uh, where coaches, practitioners obviously need to remember that fat free mass component, not just body mass, but that's that, that fat free mass that we're looking at. And like you said, when we get less than 40, we're, we're treading a little bit of water. And then if we get less than 30 for any kind of extended period of time, we start to see a lot of these adverse effects on you know immune function or even things like mood and recovery um yep. cropping up uh, last year we had dr jose aretta on from liverpool john moore was talking nice. about different potential markers i know this is obviously a, a challenging thing to to flag and diagnose so we're always looking for sort of a constellation of things that can help us to identify when an athlete might be treading towards this or if you think of the rpms getting into that red area where there's the warning right um you know for yourself in terms of whether it's questionnaires that we have for men and women or some of these different biomarkers, are there things that are starting to provide some promise? Yeah, I don't, I don't really know if we have a clear answer to that, but I think that there's a lot of different approaches that people are trying to do. You know, one of the nice things that technology has, has made available to us, you know, is where we've got things like, you know, through like, like a Gmail account or like an office 365 account. And there's a number of other platforms, but you know, we're like, so we've, we've, you know, with our studies and I know a handful of coaches, you know, where you, you create almost like a, you know, like, um, uh, like a daily questionnaire, yep. like a daily check-in, yep. you know, on a, on, a, on a scale of, you know, zero to 10, you know, 10 being fully recovered, zero being no, no recovery at all. You know, wh where are you, you know, and then ask similar questions. So you could do like recovery or soreness or energy, or, you know, I, I, I like the question, like, you know, like, 
you know, appetite to train, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, willingness to train. Um, and, you know, so, and, and that something like that can, can populate to an athlete's phone. Um, and it takes them two minutes, three minutes to answer. And then if you, you know, you, if you're able to, and then you have to go back and look at the data, you know, knowing that it's going to range. And then, and I, I think that I, I like things like that just because of the simplicity. Yeah. It's relatively free. Um, is it going to dial into every single person? Oh, no, absolutely not. No, 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 no. But, but I think when we look at this cost of benefit of a burden on the athlete expense, to, to get some, some throughput. Um, I, I like those types of approaches. I've known some strength coaches that will also do, you know, like if they had the ability to do, um, you know, like vertical jumps or yeah. like isometric mid thigh pulls and they do them and they might do them daily. They might, or they might do them weekly or something along those lines. And, and you just, you know, you have to stick. I think if I'm talking to a coach right now, I would say you've got to play the long game on these types of things. Mm -hmm. You can't expect to do this for six weeks and you get this, this, these, the heavens open on all the problems. It's more about you're able to look back over the year and you'll be like, man, I did not realize that the recovery scores were low and the mid dipole levels were really, really low during this period of time or training. And you look back over it and it was during finals week or it was during a, a, a you know, a period where I, whatever it might be. And you just have a little more insight and you and you make some adjustments or things along those lines. So it does take a little bit of effort from an app from a coach to to be thoughtful and to, to just try to go back and, and kind of jump into the data. And I think a lot of times that gets that gets overlooked because people you get caught up in the measurements and but you kind of play the long game on those things. Um yeah, I mean, it's, I'm it's, not really sold because I'm not really sold on any biomarkers yet. Yeah. You know, I, I think there's a lot of variability in those. Uh, and there's a cost and expense and, and, and things along those lines. The last one I'll, I'll share, Mark, is there's been a couple of papers. So like, like RMR ratio. Mm -hmm. So RMR ratio is this concept of we can, you know, we can get a decent idea of what somebody's resting. So RMR stands for resting metabolic rate. And we would typically define that as, as how many calories somebody burns uh, every day if they were to just stay alive. They were just kind of lay in bed all day long, ballpark how many calories they were burning. That's typically about 70, 65, 70% of the total amount of calories somebody will burn. Obviously, if there's a really involved athlete, they, that percentage might be a little bit lower. But, but nonetheless, we can measure RMR. Labs like mine can, can measure it. And then there's any number of equations to predict it as well. So you create this ratio between what we're predicting their resting metabolic rate should be 2,000 but we measure their resting metabolic rate and it's 1850. So their measured level is lower than their predicted level. So they're at, they're at a relatively low ratio. So there's been a few papers, not enough, but a few papers that have kind of thrown the flag up in the air that say, hey, wait a minute, this might be able to be used as an indicator or a signal of, of EA, of energy availability. Yeah, that last one's nice in the sense of it's pretty easy to collect with being able to collect it, that in the morning. The athlete can lie down and not having to perform bloods or anything like that in order to, to get that assessment. So it'd be interesting to see how that plays out. And, you know, to your earlier comment yeah. around the questionnaires, it is a, you know, a great way for coaches to have an opportunity to like the lights in the dashboard of your car, just to have a conversation with the athlete when some of these things come up. You know, you might not necessarily have an intervention there, but at least you then go back over the diet and the training plan. And like you said, the, the life load, how's, how's work or school and sleep to get a sense of, is all this making sense? Or is there something that we're not accounting for here? And then more likely leaning towards potentially something to do with that low energy availability. And, you know, we, we typically think of endurance athletes when we talk about low energy availability, a lot of weight making sports. But we had Jen Saigo on a few years back talking about female sprinters. You know, I see in, in basketball, you know, under fueling to what we'd like to achieve is, is pretty common, particularly in collegiate high school and collegiate athletes, especially with all those demands. Could you talk a little bit about, you know, it's difficult for sometimes coaches, even parents to separate eating for general health, which, which often involves weight loss. Let's be honest, because two thirds of the population are unfortunately overweight or obese versus, you know, eating for athletic performance is a whole mm -hmm. separate direction. And those, it gets difficult for people to separate those two things. I, honestly, Mark, what you just touched on there is was probably one of the bigger things that I've tried to emphasize in some of my talks to pop to groups. Uh, I actually just, so I just spoke at the 
uh, nutrient ingredients, you know, sports and active nutrition summit, mm-hmm. uh, you know, um, uh, about a month or so ago. And, and I, and I focused on, you know, dietary approaches and sport nutrition. And I, and I spent, I actually started that talk off with highlighting the fact that, you know, there's physique nutrition and there's performance nutrition and there's health nutrition, and it's critically important. I think probably more so for parents. Um, and then coaches would be also important as well too. But the, the, so the, 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 the scenario that I created was, you know, if we're all sitting down, you know, for dinner, we have family members, we all sit down and we have six family members that are sitting down at the table Two of them are are competitive athletically, you know. Two of them are you know are 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 active, not necessarily overweight. You know, they're 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 quote unquote doing fine. And then there's a couple of them that certainly have some weight to lose. And we're talking about well, how good is a diet, or should we do this, or should we do that? And things like intermittent fasting comes up as a diet, or a ketogenic dieting comes up. And I don't want to get into those aspects as a discussion, but we'll use those where. So like the, the, the people that want to lose weight, you know, they're going to hear about all these stories about weight loss and fat loss for ketogenic dieting. And, and, you know, and, and it may work, it may, it, that may be a very feasible tool for those, for those people, for those people. But the problem is, is that if those two people that are involved with athletic competition hear this story and they don't know any better, they're going to think, wow, ketogenic diet is great. All right, I'm going to start following a ketogenic diet, but I'm a strength and power athlete. I'm a I'm a high intensity, you know, and and Basketball then they player, wonder why, the, why. Yeah, right. I mean, all these team sport athletes that are out there that are just you know hundred millions of them that are playing across our country, right, uh, across the world, and um, you, you know, and and then and then now you know, so and then they're wondering, like, man, why is my training terrible? Why is my performance off? And you know, so that part is 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 critically important for, and quite honestly, people like us, people like myself need to bear that burden of communicating that to parents, to coaches, because who else is going to do it? Uh, I, I mean, where parents need to critically understand that if they have a desire to lose weight, you know, yes, your prescription for that means to pull back on calories and to get some more exercise, but for, for if you have children that are at, at, you know, at an age and they're involved in competitions, athletic competitions that, it, that demand high performance, you know, they don't need that message of cutting calories and cutting carbs or cutting it, whatever it might be. They need the message of you've got to make sure you're getting enough calories. And if you don't, it's going to not only put your performance at risk, it, it could potentially you know, impact your recovery. You could get more sick and illness. Your cognitive, your 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 academic skills could go down. Your ability to recover is going to go down. All these types of things, and then also they might adopt the philosophy of, well, my mom's not eating any carbohydrates because she wants to lose fat, and I'd like to lose a little bit of fat too, even though they don't need to. And then the carbs are fuel for high intensity work, and we have some other issues and problems there. So that that that's a that is that is a a a, a big big problem that um that again i think people like myself we've got to work much much harder at at clearly drawing that line because i could almost see it in the audience when Mm -hmm. i was when i was drawing the lines for them that they'd be like wow like you that's right like you we 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 need to we need to really make sure that that's an issue um because for athletes you know i mean they it's like carbohydrates have got to be their friends you know so when we talk about you know carbs have been beat up over the last 20 years uh and it's because so much of the popular culture with weight loss and diets and and that's such a strong signal uh because of the public health scenario that carbs have somewhat been targeted right as this macronutrient that we need to dial back on which that's an approach that that has some level of efficacy but but the problem is, is it has not been clearly communicated that if you're an athlete and you're wanting to you're wanting to redline, you're wanting to turn the dial up and get going as hard as you can go, you got to understand that those carbohydrates are the fuel in the fuel tank to get that job done. Very well said. Yeah, it's difficult for people to really just those that context driving everything. I mean, I've 
Sam Impion talking about Tour de France riders consuming up to 18 grams per kilo oh, of carbohydrate. Know. You know, you yes. got football players, seven to eight grams per kilo, and you show an image to the audience. Hey, this guy's gal, you know, this guy's 8% body fat. We got physique competitors, yep. obviously female and male, four to five grams per kilo. And so this whole, and of course, we know that team sport with acceleration, deceleration, the, the speeds that they hit, they're going to be a lot more energy expenditure than even someone who's training hard physique wise in the gym. So, yeah, great point of just, we, so just to be able to separate that for folks so they know that there is a big difference between the general fueling and the athlete fueling, I think is a great place to start just so that they can appreciate the context. Hey friends, I hope you're enjoying this episode. A quick reminder to let you all know that Athlete Performance Nutrition is hosting a free online football performance nutrition summit next Tuesday, June 21st to Thursday, 23rd, 2022. We've got over a dozen NFL teams and loads of top NCAA football programs on board. So it's your chance to learn, connect, and gain cutting-edge insights from people working on the sidelines and in the trenches in pro and elite college football. Best of all, it's totally free. Just head over to performancenutritionpodcast.com forward slash football. That's performancenutritionpodcast.com forward slash football and register there. All the action starts next week. Hope to see you there. All right, let's get back to the conversation. Yeah, there was somebody did a we so we published a, a review paper with ISSN that's just kind of a broad overview of like research and recommendations. And we talked about just kind of general carbohydrate needs in this paper. And then somebody did a really nice job. These one of these folks that 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 is that makes these infographics that that make your make your data look so beautiful. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they just took the carbohydrate thing and they um, uh, and I'll actually send it to you, you know, basically, so, I mean, so you can share it because I just think, I just think they did a phenomenal job because, you know, on the horizontal was body mass. And then on the vertical was basically kind of grams per grams per kg per day of, of carbohydrate intake. And then they had it shaded with green, yellow, and red of, you know, green was like general everyday fitness goals, like three to five grams per kg. And, and it, and it quantified it across body masses. And, it, and it, it's very impactful because it it does help to illustrate to like a mom, to a parent that says, look, like your 240 pound kid who's a football player who needs eight grams per kg per day, like, yes, he might need 500 grams of carbohydrates per day. And you might be thinking to yourself, oh my God, that's more carbohydrates than I'll eat in a week. You know, that can't be right. He's going to get diabetes. He's going to He's, you know, all these other things. And, and that's where it's, and you know what, I, I don't, uh, I mean, I, I, I have some level of sympathy for those folks because how are they supposed to know, Yeah. you know, the differences? I mean, you know, we, we, we spend our lives talking about these kind of things and they spend their lives doing other things. Um, but then they hear these little tangential little tidbits without context and, and then it, and then it can, it can kind of turn into something that, that they don't, they don't even intend. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing how even if mom or dad are struggling with a health condition or pre-diabetes, type 2 diabetes, hypertension, then the messaging that they're getting just trickles down to, well, don't eat too much salt or watch your carbohydrate. Now, you know, on this whole story around low energy availability, and and frankly, obviously, in in social media in general, body image, how athletes look, how people look is, is unavoidable now. And, you know, we deal with eating disorders in in clinical work and in athletes, but this middle ground, this people tend to think of it as, you know, a black and white issue versus a spectrum and disordered eating is much more prevalent than we would like to think. Um, you know, you touch on this in your paper. Can you tell us a little bit about the prevalence rates in, in, in college sport and a little bit about that spectrum between, you know, an eating disorder, disordered eating and eating, you know, for, for optimal nutrition? Yeah. And I, I think, you know, so I, I don't, I, we, we haven't really jumped into very much about kind of assessing the prevalence rates, I think as, as much as what we could have in the past. And, and that's some things that we might try to start doing across some of the female athletes across St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, Cause we're fortunate. We've got a number of different institutions with some athletic departments of varying sizes and scope. So, uh, and we've talked about doing that, but I think, you, you know, it, it's, it's an extremely, you know, there, so I think certainly, certain types of sports, right? More aesthetically driven sports. I generally probably point that needle a little bit more towards the female athletes uh, in terms of concerns, you know, re- you know regarding disordered eating. Uh, but I, I really do think it's important for people to understand that disordered eating is not the same thing as, as an eating disorder. Um, 
And but but I think there there but that doesn't mean that you should be dismissive towards one because it's not a clinical diagnosis. You know, I, I mean, you could almost kind of look at it like, you know, there's, you know, the 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 the, the fire is starting to smolder, if you will. You know what I mean? Like where there's smoke, there's fire type of a scenario would be kind of one way to think about it. And I and I don't want that to create caution or or not unnecessary alarm bells. But I think in general, a lot of time, the thing that I like is, you know, like people getting into, you know, uh, um, critically thinking about like, what is their relationship with food? Like how, and, and, and that, that, you know, I'm, that's not where my expertise has, 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 has lied upon. So I, I get a little bit nervous trying to talk in that space because that's not where I feel the most um, uh, knowledgeable you know, but I think in general, there's definitely a, a, a lot of insights, a lot of sample within the literature to suggest that there's a number of, of athletic populations out there and active people that are out there that that they don't they don't have a very they don't have a good relationship with food um, and, you know, and, and how they're eating and when they're eating uh, and, and the reasons behind that, you know, that there's a lot of people that can really. Um, I think achieve a, a, a tremendous amount of benefit uh, just from just from their 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 health and kind of men, mental mental perspective on mental disposition on life uh, if 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 they would kind of address that and you know and kind of think about that a little bit. Yeah, I mean it's interesting in the you know in the paper you cite eating disordered eating in athletes can range for, for men from zero to 19%, for women from six to 45%, and about 25% of the D1 collegiate athletes from various sports, some of which you outlined there, can also experience this. And even at, <clears throat> excuse me, even with our athletes at the highest level, whether they're in NBA or playing a pro sport, it's, it's a human thing, isn't it, to see a friend or another athlete who's leaner and all of a sudden to this, what we just talked about before, all of a sudden they decide to follow X diet or Y diet because they want to get a little leaner, even though going from nine to 7% body fat is not really going to do much for their basketball performance. And, you know, you could argue would detract from that in terms of recovery. Um, mm -hmm. So that mismatch between, yeah, the energy intake and energy expenditure, whether it's the poor dietary habits, not enough nutrient density, these are all things that, can crop up in any of us that if we start to see this, this happening more frequently, then, you know, that can be a moment for discussion with performance staff and, and docs to say, Hey, how do we, how do we help this person out? Yeah. And, and I think, you know, so the, the, the thing that I, that I, that I, that I like from what you said there that I think is important to highlight is I think many times, you know, with this, with these no multiple scenarios with different types of athletes in terms of, of where their physiques at, where they think they need to be, and maybe even where their coaches think they need to be. That's kind of another issue sometimes um, where, you know, the, the, the common, the, I guess the, the, the thing that I would always try to advocate towards is the common thread needs to be, how's their performance? How are they performing? Are they getting the job done to the manner that, that, they, that, that, that they need to be? And if they are, you know, I would say, leave them alone. Yeah. I mean, particularly if it's a coach that just what you know, like the staff, something and we run into these scenarios where there's coaches that just have this preconceived notion that this 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 type of athlete at this position, they need they need to be they need to weigh this, they need to be this percent body fat or whatever. And 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 uh, and I think that's a little bit archaic. And I, and I think well, certainly if they if they were there and they perform very, very well and they come back after an offseason and they're not there, now their performance is down. Now we're looking at we're not, we're not just picking on obvious. because we think, we, yeah, we're not picking on because we think that you, you're lazy and you got fat. We're picking on you because you're not performing well. You're, how you're performing right now is not helping this team. And I think those are that focus on communication. Uh, I think will get the athletes' attention, you know, and they won't necessarily feel like they're being targeted uh, because I think every athlete knows that their performance is ultimately what is gonna is what is kind of how they're being evaluated. You know, I mean, you know, you mentioned basketball several times. Take somebody like, um, you know, um, uh, the point guard for the Dallas Mavericks. Yeah, Luka Doncic. Yep. You know, I mean, from a physique standpoint, he's not an impressive individual. You know, but you know, so that 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 could be a classic scenario, right? Where a performance coach or a, or a sport coach is saying he needs to drop twenty pounds. He needs to be less percent body. You know, whatever it might be. But his numbers at times, what he's getting done on the court 
I would just be like, you know what, if he's, if he's able to do it, you know, and now the, with the professional athletes, the, the long, the longevity across the season is, is an, a whole nother mm-hmm. factor to throw in there too. And sometimes weight can be an issue with that, you know, so you have to look at the, the overall totality of the scenario, but I, I just, like, I, you know, cause I, I mean, I personally like basketball a lot. So I, I think of him, you know, I, cause there's, there's been some talk, you know, where his, his, you know, like, it, I don't know, maybe he didn't come back as, you know, kind of got, you know, a good a shape as what he, you know, what he could have. And he started performing better. He just said, yeah, I was, I was fat and I was overweight and he just kind of owned yeah. it. And he's like, now I'm in shape and I'm playing better. So, you know, so I think th- those are the, some of the things, but I think the, the point of that story is the fact that I, you know, um, keeping the conversation dialed in on performance and, and, and making interventions or changes or recommendations that are, that are performance centered versus physique centered. I, I think a lot of times helps to unify everybody versus creating angst or creating frustration or, or creating, um, uh, kind of negative, negative approaches moving forward. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned the coaches you know, years ago in Toronto, the Maple Leafs captain was Phil Kessel, and he had a few classic photos in the offseason of not looking the leanest. And, of course, the media got on this, and, and it became a big thing. And it was amazing that within you talk about what is the athlete doing performance-wise, well, he would test pretty much first in all the performance metrics that they would run, and he missed the fewest amount of games. And so it was like, does it really matter yeah, I, if he's 13% body fat versus nine, because he's, he's, he's winning in all these metrics and he's, he's available all the time and he's performing well. And so it can become this question of having these sort of stereotypes or things. And we still see this in the NBA of some teams saying, Hey, this guy's got to be between this and this percentage. And yep. it might work for a lot of players, but you have those outliers that you say, well, is, is that really going to benefit them to be, you know, that, that sort of lean. So it's an interesting area for sure. And if we shift gears here a little bit and, you know, we've taught college and high school athletes, if you go all the way down to, to kids and I guess teens, but all the way down to children as well, talking about creatine, obviously the, the pretty much the most studied supplement. We know it's got a tremendous uh, safety profile and the physiological performance benefits are, are well-documented. What about for, for kids, whether it's for cognitive development, whether it's, you know, prophylactic use for, for head trauma, which we know in certain sports exposures at young ages is, is not a good thing. Can you talk about what the evidence shows us at the moment there? Yeah. Um, that, that's, that's been a topic that, uh, Dr. Andrew Jagab and I have, 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 have tried to summarize very fairly, but also, uh, continue to, to put some, so what we feel are kind of some of the better documents out there for people to, to, to go to um, in, in this perspective. So I think, you know, you're, if we just kind of go backwards, I mean, you're, you know, your, your comment is, is a hundred percent on point in terms of creatine, creatine monohydrate being the most commonly studied version of creatine. Um, it goes back to the, the, you know, the early nineties, there's literally thoughts. So I always, I always have to do this with creatine mm-hmm. because there's still people out there that think that it's not studied, that think that it's not, that it doesn't work. I mean, there's, there's, we're, we're, there's literally, there's, you know, approaching thousands of studies on creatine and exercise. It's been studied since, since 1992. There's no less than, than, than like 10, like well-controlled randomized double line placebo controlled studies that have just looked at safety, just looked at safety. Wow. And, and, you know, so there's, there's multiple studies that are out there. So honestly, somebody who's saying those, those things, um, they're, they either have a bias that's not allowing them to accept it, or they just don't know the literature. It's one of those two things. So now you, you mentioned kind of some of the clinical applications. There was actually my, um, so my former PhD mentor, Rick Kreider, who's the, 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 uh, the director of the program at Texas A&M has been a, has been a world leader in, in, um, you know, creatine research. He was doing creatine research when I was at my, when I did my master's degree with him at the university of Memphis and still to date. Some of his studies with the football teams and baseball teams that were at Arkansas State are some of the longest papers that have ever been done with creatine. It's 27 month studies wow. done uh, on the football team. You know, one of the things that I like to share with people that that study would have been longer it, it, if the NCAA did not rule in 2000 and when whatever that universities could no longer provide creatine to their athletes. Yeah. That's why that study stopped. That's going to stop because of, because of that ruling. So, so there would be, so we, we actually, we like to point that out that there would be even longer data in creatine and athletes had um, the NCAA, the NCAA not made that ruling. Wow. 
but that's a little bit beside the point. But I think, you know, but, uh, um, you know, so there's, there's a lot of literature uh, surrounding creatine. Now creatine in kids or adolescents, you know, and maybe we're, so I think to kind of frame that in my mind, we're, we're talking about high school age athletes, you know, 13 to 18 year olds or so. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think number one, you know, there's, there's been an extremely limited amount of research done in North America on uh, creatine in adolescence. Rick Kreider and uh, Pamela Grindstaff did a study with some like junior adolescent swimmers and that was honestly one of the first papers that had, that had been done. The majority of the work has been done in um, um, uh, higher level soccer athletes in South America. So there's been a number of efficacy studies uh, looking at improvements in performance and things along those lines. And, and we generally see very similar outcomes in those aged athletes as we would see in kind of adult athletes, if you will. Um, from, a, from a pure safety perspective, um, and this still kind of continues to baffle Dr. Jagam and I, um, there's, there's, there are, there are zero randomized controlled placebo controlled studies that have, that have, that with the, the sole intent purpose of doing a safety profile on supplementation in adolescence with creatine. Uh, so some people, you know, so, and I, and I always try to be transparent and basically going to open it up front. So like, so for a parent, that's skeptical. They could say, well, until there's any safety data, then we're not, I don't know, my kid's not using it. And I totally get it. Like, I'm not going to sit here and, you know, but that being said, they also do need to understand that there, there are 10, 15 studies that are in the published literature that have supplemented with creatine with adolescent athletes. And there's been no pattern of documented adverse events associated with the supplementation. So, so there's evidence. It's just, there hasn't been a single study, you know, a study that has been developed with the sole and intent purpose of, of looking at the safety question. They basically, they've done efficacy and not monitored safety around it. And there's been nothing safety wise to report. I personally don't think that there's, there's any concerns um, for a younger athlete to use creatine, you know, uh, but, but, but that message is not, is certainly intended only for those athletes that don't have any type of a prior medical history, you know, health history associated, um, you know, with, with themselves that, that may kind of contraindicate, um, you know, some, some, you know, creatine supplementation as, as well as other forms of dietary supplementation. So, yeah. you know, so I, I think, um, you know, but I, um, you know, so we, we, we actually, we actually have a grant, um, uh, submitted right now to the NSCA foundation to, to do that study. Uh, so we'll, we'll find out, we'll find out about that in the funding disposition on that in, in, uh, in May or June. Uh, and if we do that, we will, we will try to launch that study here in St. Louis at some point over the summer. It's a, um, a really important question because when we look at the usage rates, I mean, it's about 5% when mm-hmm. kids go into high school, the ninth grade. And by the time we're in the 12th grade, it's about yep. 22, 25%. And when I think of the sports where, you know, setting aside even the performance benefits, if we look at sort of obviously mental health and head traumas become front and center and, you know, being from Canada, ice hockey is the number one sport. You you get a 13 year old who's 200 pounds and a same 13 year old who's 150 and they're allowed to, to, to to body check. Or if you had similar thing in football, you know, from a prophylactic standpoint, this seems like it would be something that, especially for kids when it becomes really important to support the brain. I know you know, the research there is in its infancy as in relation to adults, let alone kids, but just curious your thoughts on, on that side of things in terms of actually being able to potentially help support and protect the brain. Oh, yeah. I mean, that, that will be one of the more important questions for creatine and sports within the next 10 years. Um, I, I, uh, Rick Kreider has, has spoken about that a handful of times, uh, cause there is a gr- growing, database of, of, of literature in various populations to suggest that creatine does function in a um, you know, like a neuroprotective type of a type of a situation. Um, so you know there's but in forms of controlled evidence that is that is gotten after some of those outcomes, I don't really think we have much in the literature at this point in time. Um, and and again like it 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 becomes extremely challenging to do those studies because like we can't NCAA, any, any researcher at NCAA division one or two cannot give creatine to their athletes per the NCAA. 
So, you know, so you almost have to go down to like a D3 or an NAIA type of a type of an institution or you, you know, so that's where sports like like rugby, Australian rules football, you know, you'd have some opportunity in a sport like that where there's where there's there's ongoing collisions and things along those lines. So I think instead of, you know, so that would be kind of another approach. Uh, But those those studies are critically needed. I think there's there's a tremendous amount of potential uh, for creatine in that space. I think you could also kind of throw fish oils into that discussion as well, too. Uh, the potential combination of them because they function entirely different mechanistically is, is, is even more exciting. Um, you know, so there's, uh, yeah, but I, I think that's a, that's an area, uh, of future research that, that is really, um, uh, I mean, really needs to develop a little bit more, but, the, but it certainly, it takes some Take some well thought out, and it's kind of some a little bit of some. There's definitely some challenges kind of associated with that with that with that literature. I think just jumping back really quickly with with creatine and kids, because yeah. I, I I don't want I just don't want to leave this hanging because I definitely don't. I was I was trying to be cautious. I don't want people that have never heard me before. I don't I don't want them to think that that I'm just pushing creatine on kids, you know. Because I think in general our our approach with it is that if you've got a young individual. You know, let's just say freshman or sophomore who's just getting into training, just getting serious about their body. You know what I mean? They're, 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 I mean, I would go back to what we talked about within the first 10 minutes of our conversation. And that is that that athlete needs to focus on the foundations. They need to develop a great habit or pattern of training, training consistently, training hard, get, get some fundamental aspects of their diet in order. And then once that athlete has proven the maturity and the ability to do that, uh, you know, then we need, then we can start talking about this conversation, um, of adding in a dietary supplement, you know, such as, you know, such as creatine, I think, you know, things like protein and carbohydrates, that's just good nutrition mm-hmm. like that. I don't, that's a completely separate discussion. Um, you know, and that, and, and I mean, that's the advice that I'm going to give to my own children. That's the advice that I give to my friend's children, because I just think that, that it, it, it focuses everybody in on what's the most important thing. And that is that, They've, you've got, you've got to train and you've got to train consistently. And then you've got to fuel the body appropriately. Uh, you know, those young bodies, they've, they have so much potential <laughs> to just adapt and grow on their own, you know, so, so it, it's certainly reasonable to um, emphasize and focus and hold their feet to the fire on. They need to get those fundamentals get in place. really good at training first. Um, it's not fair to say, well, you know, wait until they're seniors or wait until they're this age or that age, because people can, you know, get introduced to some things at at different levels. And I think, you know, I think a lot of coaches know what I'm saying. We have an athlete who's getting pretty dialed in and getting pretty serious about it. Um, that when they, when they get a little bit, you know, when they become kind of quote unquote, a little bit more ready or mature enough to, to handle that type of stuff. Yeah. Like you said, I mean, that load, I mean, on the, just on the recovery side, the exercise induced oh. muscle damage. I mean, now we're, we're just helping the athlete be able to, you know, recover enough to be able to train well the next day and beyond rather than if we strictly just think of the other sort of performance metrics. So that's, uh, that's really interesting. And Chad, if we pivot here and talk back again towards just general health, again, the coaches, the practitioners, the parents, obviously in today's environment, unfortunately, two thirds of the population are overweight or obese. We've got levels of prediabetes or all-time highs and you know around the world this is a problem i think there's something like 450 million people with type 2 diabetes and so whilst we have dietary interventions and exercise is important using other strategies you know medications supplements botanical medicines so um, something that i use in practice berberine has antimicrobial properties anti-inflammatory properties but it also has an effect on lowering glucose which you know well as, as you've done some research in the area could you Talk us through the, the potential effects of berberine on, on glucose and, and and the research that you did. Yeah, so we we did, we recently published a study. We we're actually looking at just a, kind of a different formulation of berberine because mm-hmm. berberine uh, itself, it's, it's bioavailability or what we mean by bioavailability is if we ingest, you know, it's just, just for just for hypothetical numbers. This is, this, for goodness sakes, these are not real numbers with berberine. But if you in, just... To, to illustrate the concept of bioavailability, if you ingested 10 grams, you know, uh, if, uh, something with low bioavailability, well, maybe only one gram becomes available to the tissues yeah. of the body. So it has a 10%, one out of 10 grams, whereas something with high bioavailability might like nine grams of it, eight grams of it might get into the tissue. So it would, you know, have a much higher bioavailability. So again, those are nowhere near the dosages that we would throw out for berberine. 
but um, but berberine as a whole has relatively low bioavailability. So so what you have to do then is you either have to, you know, I mean one one strategy to overcome that is to is to increase the dosage. Well, when you increase the dosage, then we start to see a little bit more frequent occurrences of of adverse events, stomach upset, GI upset. You know, things just start to get, uh, you know, um, um, uh, uncomfortable with a lot of, with a number of different. So that was kind of a problem with berberine for a while there. So the company that we work with, they had developed a, a, a type of berberine uh, that was uh, basically dihydroberberine. So they kind of chemically, chemically altered it a little bit. And, they, and, and they did, and it, so we were really, the paper that we published was trying to just compare um, uh, basically how much berberine appeared in the blood after, after ingesting it. Um, and, and we certainly showed that the um, you know that the dihydroberberine did did a um, uh, a pretty good job of overcoming that low bioavailability aspect. Now, from you know from the other literature that's out there, honestly, we're, we're it's one of those pretty fascinating things. I honestly haven't looked at the literature base that closely in um, in the past year or so. But you know, there is it's one of those things that you know because berberine really got pretty popular there for a while and. Um, you know, there's there's not an abundance of literature on, let's say, like healthy populate. You know, like you know, healthy populations. There's I think there's more, much more work that has been done in like type two type two diabetes populations, uh, other clinical type populations. And if we talk about berberine's efficacy in those populations, um, there there does seem to be a pretty consistent, um, you know, movement on its ability to help improve glucose and insulin management. Um, and, and, um, the insulin management is not surprising because as, as I teach it, I mean, basically insulin follows glucose. So if glucose levels are high, insulin, insulin levels are going to be high. And if glucose levels are low, insulin levels are going to be low. So I think, you know, so, you know, berberine's ability in those populations to help improve glucose management, you know, um, is certainly favorable because, you know, for these pre-diabetes and type two diabetic populations, you know, it's, it's the, the chronic hyperglycemia and, you know, hyperinsulinemia that really wreaks a lot of havoc on, you know, like the interior vasculature, yeah. um, you know, and it, where we start to see over time with many of these populations where they develop various neuropathies, you know, and, um, you know, where basically like the microcirculation just starts to get compromised. And um, so those are, and, 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 there, and a lot of the mechanisms are kind of associated with, you know, we see like acute increases in inflammation um, as a result of the uh, hyperglycemia and um, uh, hyperinsulinemia. Um, uh, so, you know, anything that can help bring those levels down are, are, are somewhat kind of viewed viewed favorably mm. in that aspect. Um, yeah, it's interesting with botanical medicines. I mean, it's always the challenge is that the uptake of it's easy to put something in a capsule, but to actually get it absorbed and, and taken up, as you mentioned, yep. that bioavailability is a challenge. And so it's interesting to see some of the work around berberine because like you mentioned when we see that that phenotype of the type 2 diabetic with a lot of central adiposity we know that there's going to be a lot of this you know as the visceral fat goes up we've got more chronic inflammation you know we tend to have more dysbiotic gut terrain which adversely affects things like even glucose response so it's, it's an interesting botanical medicine for its impact on inflammation and antimicrobial yeah. effect and potentially um but like you said more you know a lot more work needs to be done but fascinating to see that you can alter things to be able to improve bioavailability that that technology is uh is available yeah no i mean you know from a you know it's it's a really nice example of of um just innovation mm. within you know kind of within you know dietary supplements nutrition supplements and things along those lines you know the thing that 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 i and there's be a lot of people that may not want to hear this i think a lot of times people people really kind of you know like talking about a different supplement or things along those lines but i mean you know, um, I'm an exercise physiologist at, 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 at my core. And the thing that we, we have to, we have to highlight, it goes back to that focus on the foundations. I mean, one of the primary things that an individual who's overweight, obese, pre-diabetic, you know, starting to see some challenges with hyperglycemia. Um, I mean, the single best way to improve that is physical activity. Yeah. Is to is to get your muscles active. I, I mean, our skeletal muscle is is our is our the the, the largest tissue responsible for peripheral glucose uptake. What like that a sponge means for glucose, right? It's exactly right. That's exactly when we, we that's the picture that we want to put in, put in everybody's head is that when we exercise, 
And we, and, and, and again, don't make that statement harder than what it needs to be. Don't ask that question of, well, what type of exercise? No, 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 no. Exercise, go, yeah. just go. So if that's a walk, a jog, a swim, an elliptical, a, a aerobics class, a cycle, upright, recumbent, I don't care, I don't care, I don't care, I don't care. You want to lift weights? Great. You want to use machines, free weights, kettlebells? Don't care, don't care, don't care. Don't care. <laughs> Go move. Yeah. You know, um, and it and it when we move, when we use our muscles in that way, it does, it makes those muscles much more like a sponge. You know, uh, what I use in my teaching is basically like an unhealthy muscle cell is like a rubber kickball on the playground. Wow. You know, if you dump water on that ball, if that waters that glucose, that water on an unhealthy cell, it just runs right over the ball. It doesn't get absorbed. But a, 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 a healthy cell is a Nerf ball, is a sponge ball. And you dump that water on that Nerf ball and it, it, just, yeah. it just sucks it right up. So, you know, and, 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 and that, and just exercise, do not overcomplicate it. Just exercise is the number one thing. Then if you want to make it even better, then a little bit more volume of exercise a little bit higher intensity. So grab a little bit bigger weight, increase the intensity a little bit on your intervals or, or make the speed a little bit higher on your treadmill or increase the grade, you know, and now we're, now we're making those muscles contract a little bit harder. We get a few more muscles involved and, uh, and, you know, but that's the people can't, that's a classic scenario where I think too many people want to want to point towards something like a botanical and turn their back upon exercise because just going out and getting physical activity isn't very sexy, you know, Yeah. but it's pretty foundational. hundred percent. I mean, when we look at the exercise piece, like you described, and of course, just the nutritional component that we can really move the needle here. Those are the really big levers to help reverse this condition. I, you know, you could argue that even unfortunately in medicine, when we give people a medication, we tend to just say, well, the medication's keeping you in the normal range. So you're fine now. Just continue to, and even what you're saying i mean let's keep pushing the exercise and keep improving the nutrition mm -hmm. because once you that individual does get to the place they should be they shouldn't really you know need a medication for for most situations you know that they keep improving of course gradual and under medical supervision but you know that's one that i see oftentimes where people are still on insulin or still on metformin and so and yet they're consuming four grams per kilo of carbohydrate and you think well wait a minute right i think we could adjust that a, a little bit but uh right Chad, if we come full circle here, we talked about your philosophy to start the conversation. Um, busy researcher, busy dad as well, just on the personal side of things. You know, how do you keep yourself uh, productive and performing well, you know, at work with, with kind of carving in the exercise and the nutrition? You know, what kind of simple heuristics or tips or tactics do you use to help help keep yourself uh, going in kind of the, the busyness and, and hecticness of, of life? You know, and I, I think by being an academic and what I mean by that is by by being around students that that has I think I, I, I'm, I'm much more able to articulate that than if I was just if, if I wasn't around students, because a lot of, we spend time mentoring and, and spend time, you know, kind of, you know, trying to give students, you know, some some insider ideas on things. But I think for me, um you know, I don't, so like a lot of what, what we have to do within the research side of things, there's a lot of writing, you know, I don't, what's ironic is when I was in high school, like I really didn't like English, you know, never in my life. I've told my mom and dad this so many times, never in my life that I think I would basically be a writer, but that's really what I am. You know? So the cool thing about finding your passion is that when you find something that you just, you really, really love, then you end up doing things associated with that, that you never really thought that you would do. And, yeah. Um, so, so I, the, so the first thing is that, I mean, I, 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 we do a lot of writing and I, and I have, I tell people, you know, so I think one of the first things that I think I do very good is, I mean, I wake up every, every morning in the first, I start my day first 60 to 75 minutes is spent writing. Um, I, I, I always have some, whether it's a grant an abstract, looking at some data, writing a review article, you know, um, and that I think has allowed me to continue to be, maintain a certain level of productivity through various job changes, you know, kids getting introduced into their lives. Um, the thing that I've done a lot better job of in the last year uh, is, is prioritizing exercise. I've always been active. I always know the value of exercise, but I would say within the last not six to nine months, I made a more pointed effort of when the time went off that I said I was going to go exercise that I, I got my butt up out of the chair and I got moving. 
Uh, and it's just a lot of, for me is a lot of simple things. Like I put my workout clothes on first thing in the morning, they're laid out the night before. So it's a lot of robotic things that people might think, Oh my God, this guy sounds such, so boring or such a drag. Nice trigger though. But isn't it? You see that triggers. You know, the but you're right. Like I just, you know, I'm not, I'm not that special of a person. So it's like, I've got to do these things that, that lowers the barrier for me to, to, to do another path. So it's, you know, you get up, you get up, go to the bathroom. My, my clothes are right there. So within the first five minutes, I've got workout clothes on. I have zero. I can't tell you how many times when I wake up first time in the first thing in the morning, I'm almost kind of like nauseated at the thought of, of going and exercising right then and there. But you know what? You get a cup of coffee, you get a glass of water, you, you know, and, and then honestly, by about, you know, after I, I but for, I, I'll get down and I'll get settled into some writing and different things. And then after usually about you know, 60 to 75 minutes, then I'm, then it's like, okay, I'm, you know, now I'm, you know, kind of, now I'm ready to go exercise. The caffeine's kind of kicked in. Um, so that, that I think has been a big thing for me. And then on the other end of the day is because I get up early. Like I, this is probably the number one thing that we see with students is you got to get your, you got to get your butt to bed. I, I don't, you know, like I don't. Um, so, but you know, beyond that, I don't, there's really, tips, you know, though. as I kind of, was, those are two yeah, great tips. I, I, start I, the day the, well, end the day well. And, and, you know, most things in the middle you can, well, you can overcome. Cause I, I generally think, and if people can't get up in the morning, it's just because they're not getting to bed on time. I, they're just not getting to bed when they need to get yeah. to bed. I, you know, I, I, I don't, uh, and, and again, there's larks and owls and, you know, people that work better in the evening or night, but I'm just, I'm one of those people that, you know, I, 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 I do really, really well in the morning. I've identified that. So I, I kind of focus some things around there. Uh, the other thing that I try to do, like I, I'm fortunate, I've got some flexibility in my job and that, you know, um, you know, like I'm, I'm able to many times be, beat the commute, you know what I mean? Yeah. So like, if I've got some time at, you know, like I might have the open afternoon. So it'd be like, it might be like two o'clock, two 30. It'd be like, you know what? I'm going to leave campus and I'm going to go home. I'll beat the traffic. So I don't spend an extra 15, 20 minutes in traffic and then I'll go home and then just that mental shift. And then I'll get home to my home office and I'm already home. And, and then I can, and, and then I don't, um, so I can kind of get a little bit of work done there. I do that a couple times a week as well too. Um, but yeah, I don't, you know, I, there's, there's no secret strategies to, to everything, but I think you hear a lot of times, you know, um, you, you just, you've got to figure out ways how to do it. And then you, a lot of times it's just left foot, right foot, just get up and get going. Yeah. It's amazing how that kind of scheduling and making sure thinking about ahead of time really helps to be able to execute on those things. So great, Great tips, Chad. Really appreciate your time, your insights. You know, where Thank can you people so much. stay connected with your research and, and all the tremendous things you're doing? Yes. Well, um, I it's it's been a lot of fun. We covered a lot of topics. <laughs> yeah, appreciate uh, we, the time. we did a nice job. Yeah, but yeah, thank you so much. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. To watch the full video interview and short clips from this episode, check out our YouTube channel, Performance Nutrition Podcast. Finally, if you enjoyed the podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe. All that good stuff. It's a massive help to the show. Until next time, take care. The Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcasts. 